Good morning. If you've got a Bible, you can open it up or turn your Bible on and get to Matthew, the 18th chapter. Matthew chapter 18, we're going to camp out today as we look at part of the teaching out of 1 Corinthians 13. And so uh, if you want to join us with that, we'd appreciate it. And if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat in front of you. You can keep that right in it. That's our gift to you. Take it home with you. We want you to have that. Uh, but Matthew 18 is where we're going to be. Hey, let me cover a few things. One, if you're a guest with us, my name is Rob. I'm just glad that you're here this morning. Genuinely. We gather together weekly to be reminded of a few things. One, of the incredible grace that was given to us in the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. And then the mission that he's called us to live. And so we get reminded and refreshed and we walk out of here uh, intentionally to live on purpose for Jesus. And so we're glad that you're joining us uh, this morning. Uh, A couple things that are going to be taking place. One is, after third service today, we have a congregational meeting. Uh, This meeting, we're we're asking uh, all members to try to be there for. And so you'll come in uh, right after the third service. So you've got time after this service. You can jump into one of our classes that we're offering You can run over to Cracker Barrel and beat all the other churches letting out and get yourself something to eat and come right back over. Um, And so third service at the end of it, congregational meeting to discuss year two of our REACH initiative, the financial part of the REACH initiative. We want to invite you to come back for that. Uh, Anyone else is welcome to join us as well. We'd love to have you. The second thing that I want to bring to your attention is our Easter services. Um, We've put a lot of prayer and preparation into this. This is a big weekend. This is a weekend where a lot of your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers, they may accept an offer to come to church with you when they might not any other weekend of the year. So what a prime opportunity to invite somebody to come. And so we want to be intentional on that weekend. Uh, our Good Friday service, we're going to uh, come in here and, and have a Good Friday service, 7 o'clock Friday night. And then Sunday morning, we have a sunrise service at 7 a.m. And then our three normal service times, where we're going to be very honest. We're going to take a look at the, the life, uh, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus and how it changes everything for us. And so it's a great opportunity to invite somebody. And so we would uh, ask you, go ahead and make plans and be praying for that weekend. Hey, this morning, uh, we're going to continue on looking at Matthew chapter 18. But before we do, let's pray together, prepare our hearts. Father, thank you for your presence with us this morning. God, thank you that you're so good to us when we don't deserve it. As This morning, as we handle a very heavy uh, topic, I pray, Father, that you would uh, mold and shape our hearts. God, that our minds would be attentive, that you would eliminate distractions from the enemy, and that when we walk out of here today, God, because of the power of your word, we might be different. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I don't know if you're like me, but I I like reading. I haven't always enjoyed it, but I do a lot now. And I picked up a book recently uh, that was a bestseller. It was a business leadership book called Essentialism. A really good read, but in the book, Uh, The idea is that you would go through your life, both physically, and you would go through it emotionally, you'd go through it leadership-wise, and you would begin to ask some serious questions about what would benefit your life and what doesn't benefit your life, what you should um, uh, eliminate from your life and what you should keep in your life. In the opening chapter of this book, it's fascinating, the guy uses this analogy of a closet, and he says, hey, when you go into your closet... Uh, you need to look at everything you own. Now, some of you are like nudging your spouses. Remember, this is a series on messy relationships. Don't make it worse. Uh, But uh, it was so encouraging that this is exactly what I did. Um, I went into my closet, and I did what this guy asks you to do. He says, take all of the clothes that you own in your closet and ask yourself this, in my opinion, extremely corny question. Do you bring me joy? (laughs) Some of you, I would just love to see you do that. Uh, But anyway, do you bring me joy? Another way to put this is like, are you useful? 
Are you actually a part of my life that I'm going to use? Now, if you're like me, I say yes to everything uh, in the past because what if? Like, that day is going to come where I might need those jeans with the hole in it that are fading really bad. That day might come where I need that shirt that I probably will never wear, but that day may come. And so he says, have an honest conversation with yourself. So that's what I did. And, it, it, you know, don't ask my wife to what degree, but I, I like being organized. Uh, I pay attention to it. And so I go into my closet. I filled three leafing garbage bags full of clothes in my closet that I just never use. Shoes, clothes, and immediately put them in the car, drove, and donated them immediately before I could think about it. And then came home, and I'm like, all right, that was a really bad decision. <laughs> I haven't missed them. Not a single thing. Now, I wear the same, same shirt every day now, but I haven't missed them. <laughs> but, but he says, go through your closet. Now, he says, if a lot of us, and I agree with him, and I think if you're like me, you'll agree with him, there's a lot of times where instead of doing the hard work of sorting through what's in the closet and determining what benefits your life and what doesn't, it's a whole lot easier to just close the closet door and pretend like everything's all right. And that same issue physically is what the Apostle Paul does for us emotionally and spiritually in the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. You see, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the Apostle Paul is writing to a church filled with very successful people, people that were very driven, very motivated. They had not been doing life together for very long, and, and so they were somewhat cutthroat, people mistreating other people. It was a very difficult place. A lot of messy relationships took place in this church. And so Paul begins to address these messy relationships, and he begins to tell them, hey, when you have the Holy Spirit living in you, and last week we talked about this, uh, God, uh, when, when Jesus resurrected from the dead and ascended to the Father, he promised to send the helper, the Holy Spirit. And those of us who has, have accepted Jesus, those of us who have been baptized into Christ, we, we have the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us. And the Holy Spirit's job is to direct us and mold us and shape us into who God wants us to be in order to do what God wants us to do. He changes you. And we've said it this way at this church quite a bit, and I believe this with all my heart. You see, the gospel, the truth of Jesus, is not about changing your behavior. It's about changing your heart. See, Jesus isn't concerned with behavior modification. He's more concerned with heart transformation. And so Paul narrows in on that, and he says, for the believer, for the follower of Jesus, if the Holy Spirit's alive in your life, he's going to produce these characteristics that help resolve some of the messy relationships, if you will. But they're not easy. And he starts out with some really good ones. He says, love is patient, love is kind. And then he gets a little bit more difficult. He says, but love does not envy or boast. It's not self-seeking or rude. And then today he begins to address this issue that for me has been a challenge for a long, long part of my life. He begins to address this issue in 1 Corinthians 13 that for me, if, and maybe you're like me, I'd rather close the closet door. I'd rather not go into the closet and do the hard work of dealing with whether or not this emotion or this feeling that I have that's affecting so many of my relationships is something that's benefiting my life or not benefiting my life. I'd rather not do that. I'd rather just close the closet door and pretend like everything's okay. You see, this one for me gets really personal. And maybe you battle this too. The Apostle Paul says love, real love, heart transformation type love is not angry. It does not remember when people have done you wrong. It's not resentful, in other words. It does not keep a record of wrongs. See, for me, I've always battled this. I've always been challenged with, I do get angry. I do get frustrated, and I live in a culture, and I live in a world that tells me that sometimes that's probably okay. And here's the deal. Sometimes it is. It's okay to be angry. It's not okay to stay angry. It's okay to recognize that there are some emotions and feelings hanging in the spiritual closet of your heart. It's not okay to close the closet door. And for me, for a long time in my life, I'd close that door and just pretend like it was okay, only to have anger and resentment 
destroy relationships in my life. And the Bible teaches that the solution to our anger and our resentment is forgiveness. Not only experiencing the forgiveness of God, but extending the forgiveness into the lives of other people. But if you're like me, that's a challenge. Because some of us have been really hurt. I know firsthand that pain is the great equalizer of people. It puts us all on the same playing field. See, everybody in this room, and some of you I know personally have experienced some great pain. People have wronged you. People have hurt you. People have mistreated you. They've mischaracterized you. And that pain is real. And for that pain to produce anger and sometimes resentment, that's okay. But if you're like me, you know that when we've closed the closet door, it doesn't seem to make things better. You can ignore it for so long until other relationships in your life begin to get affected heavily by your anger and your resentment. And so you read a passage like this by the Apostle Paul and you think, how in the world am I supposed to live this out? And I said this last week, and I really believe this is the best way for us to live out anything the Bible teaches, is to look at what Jesus had to say about it. What did our king say? See, the point of the Gospel of Matthew is to talk about the kingdom of heaven. I mean, he does it all the way throughout his Gospel. Uh, Matthew is building a case that Jesus is our king, and when we become Christians, we live within his kingdom, underneath his reign, underneath his rule. And so Jesus begins to address this situation of forgiveness through the lens of someone who lives in the kingdom. Which means if you're a follower of Jesus, this is very relevant to you. And he begins to address it with a question that's posed to him. And as a master teacher, which is what Jesus was, he never just answered a question with a straight answer. No, he had to teach and help you come to your own conclusion because he knows that change, if we're really going to allow our hearts to transform, we have to own it. We have to own it. We have to actually open the closet door, begin to look at what we've allowed to hang on the, heart, on the curtain of our, or the rack of our hearts and deal with these emotions and pains instead of just ignoring them. And so this is the question that was posed to him. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21, Jesus is approached by Peter. And I love this. Peter is someone who battled frustration, anger, and sometimes resentment. And I think it's no mistake that my middle name is Peter <laughs> uh, or that I gave my oldest son that middle name. So uh, verse 21, then Peter comes to Jesus and he says to him, now the then Peter is following a teaching that Jesus had. Jesus had just got done teaching on church discipline. When sin is a very serious thing that takes place and begins to hurt a church, you execute church discipline. And at the end of that teaching, Jesus came to this conclusion. The purpose, the reason that you would even do church discipline it's not to shame somebody. It's not to show somebody that they were wrong. It's not just to correct somebody. The purpose of church discipline is to restore somebody. It's to lead them to repentance. It's to re reconcile them to their church family and their heavenly father. The purpose of church discipline is not what a lot of people might think it is. And we could learn a lot. That's a whole separate sermon, parents, on why we discipline. It's not as an act of our anger and frustration. It's in an effort to restore. It's in an effort to build up. It's in an effort to shape and mold into who God needs us to be. So, and then Peter comes to him after this teaching. He says, Lord, if that's the case, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I don't say to you seven times, but 77 times. This would have confused him. See, before the interaction, Peter comes to him and Peter says, okay, Jesus, if that's the case, if it's all about restoring people, when is enough enough? I mean, how many times do they have to continue to mess up where I don't have to forgive them anymore? Do I have to just forgive them seven times? Because seven's a big number. That's a lot of times to forgive somebody in an effort to restore them and to fix a messy relationship. That's a lot of effort to put into that. You see, the problem, there's a couple problems with Peter's question. The first one is this. He's making forgiveness a behavior. It's not behavior modification, but heart transformation. Forgiveness is not just something you do. It's someone you become. And Jesus is interested in making us a forgiving people. 
not people who just extend forgiveness all the time. There's a difference. It changes your heart. And so for us to extend forgiveness. And so Peter makes it a behavior, and, and he's looking for an out. He's looking for, to, to seek justice in his own hands. He's looking to control the outcome by himself. And Jesus responds to him with this, not seven, and your Bible might say seven times 70 or 77 times. The, the whole concept here is if you do the math, is that whether it's 77 times or 490 times if you do the math. Jesus' point is this. Whether it's the 70, 78th time or the 491st time, you never stop forgiving. He says, Peter, you're not seeing it right. Forgiveness is not just something you're marking off on a list. Forgiveness is something you continually always extend to people. Now, if you're like me or Peter, that's confusing. Like, whoa, Jesus, there's got to be a limit to how much we forgive people. And you're like, yes, please, Rob, is there a limit? And Jesus knew that we would wrestle with that, so he, he doesn't stop his teaching there. He says, let me tell you a story. And he begins in verse 23. He says, therefore, because of that, because you never stop extending forgiveness to people when they wrong you, the kingdom of heaven is... Like, uh, it's to be compared to a king. And so he says, the kingdom of heaven, remember, and we've, we're living inside this kingdom, his kingdom could be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, that's a little bit confusing. He's going to use this analogy. He says, a king has a kingdom, and he needs to settle some debts. It's time to collect on the debt. So he calls in this servant. A couple things about this servant. One, the servant owed him 10,000 talents. Now, you can read a lot of books. You can do a lot of translating the one thing that's difficult is to pinpoint exactly how much that would equate to in our world. Okay? It's hard. People take guesses. And so here's my best guess. Uh, uh, 10,000 talents. A talent would have taken the average working person in the Greco-Roman world about a year to earn. So if you were to take 10,000 talents, and let's put it in today's math, if you were to take the average working person earning, let's just say for math's sake, $30,000 a year, and multiply that by 10,000. Now, I went to Bible college, so I had to get a calculator. And the math works out to roughly $300 billion. So, so here's the thing. The, the whole point is, this is an unforgivable debt. This number would have been so astronomical, they would have thought, wait a second. He owed him that much. How's that possible? Here's the other thing it reveals to us, though. This is not your average servant. This isn't the cook or the maid. Okay? This isn't just somebody. This is someone who the king trusted. This is someone who the king cared about. This is someone who the king gave power to. As a matter of fact, in those days, usually a king would rule a kingdom and they'd have provinces. And they would put trusted people over these provinces. And when these people would lead, they would literally use the king's money because in those days there were no public monies. So if you remember in the Gospels when Jesus took the coin and he said, uh, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. He was being literal. That was literally Caesar's money. Kings would literally give their money all through their provinces in their kingdom, and it would be used to build roads, to hire military, to pay for uh, protection, all these different things, and then taxes were collected, and, and the king had all this money. And so for a servant to owe 10,000 talents worth of the king's money was such an incredibly large number that it would have put the king's very kingdom at threat. It would have, it would have threatened the king's very kingdom. He wouldn't have had the ability. He would have been thinking, you owe that much. How this is a gross mismanagement of the resources I entrusted to you. This is unbelievable. How could you abuse the goodness that I've extended to you to this extent and have a debt this big? And so you're left reading that thinking, no matter what happens, whether he has to try to collect this debt or somehow he finds his way to reduce the debt or maybe even by some miracle he forgives the debt, either way, it's going to cost the king a lot. So verse 30, or 23 
or moving on from 23, verse 25. And since he could not pay it, this servant, uh, his master ordered that he be sold, his wife be sold, his children be sold, and that the payment be made. Collect as much as you can from the lives of this family, which anyone in that day would have been like, yeah, that makes sense. Like, absolutely. You owe this much? The only thing left to do is to sell you guys into different kingdoms and just get as much back as we can to recoup on some of this debt. So the servant falls on his knees and implores him or begs him or pleads with him, please have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity or compassion for him, the master of the servant released him and he forgives the debt completely. Now this is not only fascinating because the debt is forgiven, but the reason why. The king was fully ready to execute justice and then the servant uh, uh, applies to his compassion. He's pleased to show some compassion. And he uses this key word, he says, Be patient with me. And that happens to be the same word that the Apostle Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 13 when he describes love. He says love is patient. In the Greek, it's a compound word. Our English translations have a hard time with it. It literally translated would mean long-tempered. Long-tempered. And what it means is no matter what happens on the outside of you, it doesn't affect the inside. All these bad things can happen around you. All these pains can happen to you, but you you don't respond to that. Literally, it means this, the inner power to bear injury without meltdown. The inner power to bear injury without meltdown. In other words, things all around you can affect you in such a negative way, but somehow you keep your poise and composure. You know, it might be compared to instead of long temper, you have people that are short-tempered. They have a short fuse. That's maybe one of the top characteristics people would have given me growing up, if I'm being honest. Short-tempered easily frustrated, easily irritable, always looking to collect on a debt, always thinking somebody or something owed him. But not this king. The Greek word is, is, techni- is, is literally makrothymio, the ability to compose oneself in the midst of all kinds of things that could potentially cause a lot of injury. Now I want you to understand this. That kind of patience would have changed this man's life. This man, imagine what he experiences. I owe a debt that big. I've messed up this much. Imagine what it would have felt like walking down the steps of that kingdom leaving that day. The weight that would have been lifted off of his shoulders to feel unforgiven. This is unbelievable. I don't owe anything. Wow, what freedom to be walking in. And you'd think at this point in the story that he's, it's going to change his life forever. But the story takes a weird twist. And all of a sudden he gets distracted by something in his life. Though he's experienced this great grace, this great forgiveness, he gets distracted in verse 28. That same servant went out. He found out one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. A hundred denarii would have been payable in a couple months. Seizing him, he began to choke this man and saying, pay me what you owe me. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. Same exact wording. Have patience with me and I will pay you back. He refused. And he put this man in prison until he should pay the debt, which didn't seem possible in prison, but... So this same exact experience, this man experiences the patience, the grace, the forgiveness. He walks out of the kingdom. He has an opportunity to extend that same forgiveness, that same grace. And you're reading it. If you're watching this on a movie, you're thinking, absolutely. This is where the transformation takes place. This is going to be awesome. Not only did he experience it, but now he's going to offer it. It's going to change all of his lives. He's going to have this great impact. But all of a sudden, somebody owes him a meaningless amount of money compared to the debt he was just forgiven, and he chokes him, he gets violent with him, he gets angry with him, and he, he says, please have patience with me. You, you might even say, please have the same patience that was just extended to you. Not a chance. He throws him in prison until he, he can pay back that debt. Now, you're thinking to yourself, if you're like me, what in the world? 
Do you not get what was just done for you? Do you not understand the grace that was just extended to you? Do you not understand that compared to what you were asked to forgive, what was forgiven of you doesn't even pale in comparison. You've experienced this great amount of forgiveness and you can't forgive in this one little situation. And then if you're like me, you're reading this story and I'm like, that's me. That's me. I'm the servant. I'd love to be a different character in this story, but I'm not. Come before the king of the universe. And because of Jesus, I've experienced forgiveness of my sin. That all of my sins have been forgiven. That the creator of the universe, when he should punish me, when what I deserve, according to the Bible, is death and separation from God. What the Bible calls hell. I deserve that. And yet Jesus stepped right in front of it. And he paid my debt. I've experienced this great joy. And I can sit in church on a Sunday and I can experience it. And I can walk out on Monday morning and somebody violates me. Somebody does something petty. Or here's the deal, not so petty. Somebody really hurts me. They dig deep. They cause pain in my life. And the Father is asking me to extend that forgiveness. And the last thing I can do is extend it. And I'm the character here. I want you put in prison until you can repay this. I want justice to be served. And I look back over here and I come back on Sunday mornings and I sit in here and I think, God, thank you for your forgiveness for me. And I walk back out there and I'm not forgiving anybody else. I'm not extending that forgiveness to anyone else in my life. And here's the deal, friends. The same is true. No matter what you've experienced in this life and here, I don't want to minimize it. And I've walked with some of you through some deep pain. Pain is real. Pain's okay. Compared to what God has done for you, it's not a comparison. It doesn't compare to what God had to pay to purchase your debt. Verse 28, or verse 31, sorry. When his fellow servants saw that what had taken place, they watched him and his lack of forgiveness and grace. They were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then this master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you of all the debt because you pleaded with me. I had compassion on you. I showed you grace. And should, should you not have had that same mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger... His master delivered him to the jailers until he could pay back the debt. Outraged. Everyone around him was outraged. Why? Your Bible might say distressed or even sad. Because all of these fellow servants live in the same kingdom, under the same king, and have experienced the same grace. And so when they watch somebody be forgiven like this and not extend it to someone else, it breaks their heart. And so they go to the king and they say, look, he's, he's experienced your greatness and your goodness, and he's not. It's church discipline, friends got to bring him, this has got to be solved. Why are you not extending the forgiveness that's been so graciously offered to you on the cross? So he gets thrown in prison, and here's the deal about the prison. How many of you guys think that uh, he might be able to repay $300 billion debt sitting in a prison cell? He's not. He's not. And so here's the lesson that you learn. You learn that when we fail to extend forgiveness, we put a lid on our capability of receiving it. See, when we fail to extend forgiveness to other people, we might be able to receive some of God's grace, but there's a lid, there's a cap. And you will always hit that cap when you're up against the people and the situations you fail to extend forgiveness to, and you harbor anger and resentment, and you have these messy relationships in your life. As painful as they've been, your lack of ability to forgive them will always prevent you from receiving more and more from him. And so you have to process that. That's what happened with this servant. Now he's in a prison cell, unable to receive the forgiveness of the king because he failed to extend the forgiveness of the king. And so Jesus says in verse 35, the scariest verse in this whole thing, he says, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. 
from your heart, your motivation. Jesus reminds us in Matthew 6 in the Lord's Prayer. He says, and Father, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. He says, God, as, as we've experienced your forgiveness, may we extend it to everyone else in our lives, no matter what they've done. And now here's the deal. I don't want to minimize your pain because Jesus would not minimize your pain. Some of you have been really hurt. And you've, you have this anger and you have these frustrations and you have this resentment about the pain that was caused to you. And here's the deal. It's not bad to feel anger and resentment. It's bad to hang it on the closet, on the shelf of your closet and close the door and pretend like it's not there. Because when we do that, God's going to come to us and say, you know that grace that I extended to you? You know that mercy that I extended to you? Why didn't you extend it? Well, God, you don't know how bad that hurt. I don't. Look at the cross. You were mischaracterized. You were abused. You were mistreated. You were hurt. My son was mischaracterized. He was abused. He was mistreated and he was hurt. I know what it feels like. And I forgave you by paying the price with my son. So you forgive the people in your life. Friends, I'm not minimizing your pain, but I am telling you this. The more you come to understand the holiness of God and the reality of your own sin and the grace that was bestowed on you by the holiness of God, the more you will be willing and capable of extending forgiveness to other people. So where do we start? I've got two observations about the passage. I'm going to give you three things you can practically do in your life. The first observation about this passage that I find is this. Unresolved anger and resentment, they're forms of self-imprisonment. When these emotions are ignored or the closet door is, the closet door is closed, they're going to punish you as much or more than they're going to punish the person that you're angry or resentful towards. It's self-imprisonment. It's going to kill your relationships. We took my kids to the zoo this week. A lot of the animals were out. The cheetahs were out too. And I'd read uh, recently about how cheetahs operate. You know when a cheetah's running full speed, it can only be running full speed with a full level of energy until its brain reaches a temperature of 105 degrees, at which point the cheetah has two options. Stop, collect yourself, regain some energy, or die. That's it. So when a cheetah is chasing a gazelle, the gazelle only has to withstand the temperature of 105 degrees in the brain. If I can keep running until this cheetah reaches 105 degrees in the brain, I'm going to be okay, or the cheetah's going to die, and then I get to eat. So, so they're running away, right? And so, but the, the interesting thing about the gazelle is this. When their brain reaches 105 degrees, they have a chamber in their brain that releases blood that automatically cools their brain. And so they can extend it all the way to 109 degrees. 109 degrees. This is literally a case of cooler heads prevailing. <laughs> literally. Cooler heads prevail. And in our relationships, that's the same. Now, if you've ever watched Animal, like the Animal Planet channel, this is what the cheetah really needs. He needs a motorcycle. Because uh, the, the gazelle, because the cheetah always catches the gazelle. But if for some reason the gazelle were to escape, see, the same thing's true in our relationships, friends. We get angry and we build up resentment and we're not willing to forgive and we're just so frustrated and mad. And we get to this point where we have two options open the closet door and deal with the feelings you're experiencing, or let it kill your relationships and kill everybody around you because of your unwillingness to deal with your. Lack of forgiveness, your anger, and your resentment. Second observation is this. Forgiveness is not easy. It costs God his only son, so we should expect that forgiveness will cost us too. See, there are times when forgiveness is going to cost you your pride because you're the one that has to seek forgiveness and get over yourself. I grew up in a culture, in a world, and I've been influenced. Men, can I talk to you for a moment? 
we're encouraged to be macho and tough and to not talk about the closet, not talk about what's hanging in the closet. Like somehow that's more manly as we kill more and more relationships. We have more and more kids that need better dads, more and more wives that need better husbands. It's not macho to not talk about what you're feeling and experiencing. And so what we learn here in this passage is Jesus is saying, you got to get real with this. It's going to cost you something. Sometimes it's your pride. Other times it's, going, it's, it's not just going to be your pride that it costs you. It's going to cost you your sense of justice, your control. You have to trust the Lord to take the consequences of what took place. And that's hard and painful and difficult at times. This hit home for me in a real way. My brother Matt and I were driving in the car about two years ago. Some of you may have heard this. And he, he asked me, he said this, he said, hey, I know you're a pastor and everything and that you're supposed to forgive, again, making it a behavior instead of a transformed life. You just have to forgive people. Do you forgive the guy that killed dad? See, part of my story is my dad was killed by a 17-year-old kid. He was shot and killed. And so he wanted to know 23 years later, 24 years later, do you forgive him being a pastor? And I said, hey, I'm going to take a minute to think about that before I answer you. Went home, and I'm reading the Bible, and I'm praying, and I come to this conclusion, look at what he did for me. I deserve to die. I deserve to be uh, separated from him forever. And he sent Jesus to die for me. And so I was able to go back to my brother before he flew home. And I said, yeah, Matt, you asked me that question. I do forgive him. I do. I want to see him in heaven one day. It's not worth it. It's not worth being angry and resentful anymore. It's killing other relationships. To release that, that frustration and that anger is the freedom that God wants to give you. Three applications, friends, and we'll finish up. The first is this. Would you just be honest about what you're experiencing? Some of you need to just open the closet door. Yeah, I'm dealing with this. This hurts. This, this is painful. I'm angry. I'm resentful. And it's because of this. Address it. Get an accountability partner. Get a prayer partner. Come to the church. This is why we're here. We're not here for the stage, for some show. We're here to walk through life together. Find somebody. Say, hey, would you just talk to me and pray with me? I've got some real anger and resentment in my heart, and it's starting to affect all these other relationships, and I need to work through it. Would you be honest? That's what Jesus called them to do. Instead of blowing up on this uh, other servant that owed this man a petty amount of money, he should have composed himself. Instead, it killed his relationships. Number two, would you embrace the forgiveness that God has offered you? Because you can't offer somebody else what you haven't experienced yourself. You see, some of you are beating yourself up over your past because you're the one that actually needs to go seek forgiveness this week or in the coming weeks. And you're beating yourself up and you're feeling shame and you're feeling resentment and you're feeling frustrated because of where you're at in your life. And and I get it. I understand that. But you have to come to this understanding that despite your mistakes, you're not disqualified. That the God of the universe, we've said this over and over again, he is absolutely crazy about you. God loves you. It doesn't matter what you've done, where you've been, or what you've been through. He loves you. He is crazy about it. So crazy, he'd give his only son so that he could have a relationship with you, so that he could shape you and mold you and, and, and help you and give you freedom. Some of you need to come to this conclusion and just start believing that. Some of you, you've never made a decision to follow Jesus. You've never accepted that forgiveness. You don't have the Holy Spirit in your life, so it's no wonder you feel this way. And he's sitting there calling you. Please, come home. I care about you. I love you. Some of you need to start believing that, that the God of the universe loves you and he cares for you. Third thing is this. As hard as it might be, offer that forgiveness that you've received from God to other people. Begin the process. Start working through your past and these emotions you've been ignoring and, this, and start 
seeking to, one, forgive people that have hurt you because you're focused on what has been forgiven of you or start seeking the forgiveness of other people that you've hurt because you understand how incredible it is to be forgiven by God. Anger and resentment, unresolved, will kill you and your relationships. I was reading this week about a guy named Carlos Whitaker. Carlos is a, uh, he's in ministry, and um, his dad was a preacher, and Carlos went through a really rough patch in his life, and he uh, was going to go away to a treatment facility, uh, a counseling center, for eight days, had to completely disconnect from the world. He didn't want to go. He was fighting it. He really didn't want to go. He thought he could overpower this on his own. He could just overcome things by himself like he always had in his past. He, I can do this. I don't have to address this. So he's on his way there. His wife and kids are in the car, and everybody knows he needs to go. He doesn't want to go. And he calls his dad, thinking somehow his dad will give him a reason that he doesn't have to go to this place. His dad had been a preacher, and so he tries to talk his dad into giving him something that he could use to not go to this place. And his dad says, hey, Carlos, son, let me tell you a story. He says, when I was preaching down in the country of Panama, I did a revival. When I was done preaching the first night of the revival, this lady comes walking up, and she just kind of makes her way to the front. And she says, pastor, pastor, please pray for me. Pray for me. I've got these cobwebs in my head, these unresolved parts of my past. I've got these mistakes, all these cobwebs. Just pray for God to take the cobwebs. He says, okay, I'll pray for you. And he prays for her. He said, son, the second night of the revival, same lady comes walking up to the front. Pastor, pastor, I've got these cobwebs. Would you please pray for me? Pray for me. I've got all these cobwebs. Looks at her. He says, okay, okay, I'll pray for you. He said, son, on the third night of the revival, the same lady starts coming down. She says, pastor, pastor. He goes, look, lady. I'm going to pray for you, but I'm going to pray a different prayer. He begins his prayer. He says, God, please leave the cobwebs right where they're at and give my sister the courage to kill the spider. Friends, this is what Jesus is calling us to. You can leave the cobwebs or leave the clothes in the closet and pretend like everything's okay, like you have the power and the ability to overcome this on your own. I can forgive. I'm not angry. I'm not resentful. You can continue fighting on your own. Or you can do what Carlos His dad did. His dad looked at him and said, son, get out of the car. Get out of the car and let God help you kill the spider. Jesus is calling each of us to stop trying to do this on our own. Because we can't. We just can't. To let the Holy Spirit help you kill the spider. So you can clear out the cobwebs. You can clean out the closet. Use your own analogy. Start forgiving people and enjoying the forgiveness of the Father as you extend it to the people in your life. Will you do that this week? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your forgiveness and your grace. We don't deserve it. We don't. And you're good. Father, as we've heard from your word and we're about to sing a song together, may the words just sit heavy on our hearts and remind us that even though we don't deserve it, you still offer it. That on our worst day, our Heavenly Father is still crazy about us. God, may that never get old. Father, for the person in the room who hasn't considered Jesus to be their Lord and Savior, just put it heavy on their hearts. God, do your thing. We trust you. Let them be honest about what they're experiencing and feeling and ask real questions. God, most of all, we thank you for Jesus. All that he's done for us and all that he's called us to. And we pray in his name. Amen.